We are in week two of a summer sermon series called Under the Sun. I'm going to talk in a second about why we named it Under the Sun. You might have guessed it already, and if, if you did, you probably guessed right. But Under the Sun, popular culture and biblical wisdom. We're looking at popular culture. We're looking at the language of the world we live in so that we can think to ourselves, is the message we get from culture resonant with, supportive of biblical wisdom, or are there some places where maybe they conflict or contrast? We kicked it off last week by talking about a recent Disney film, Encanto. Great film, uh, because we talked about it. One of our life groups, who has no young kids in their houses anymore, their kids all have grown up and left, uh, they said, you know what we're gonna do? For Life Group, we're going to watch Encanto together. Uh, and that was just, that was awesome. And I thought to myself, i got to really make sure I think about which movies I keep talking about. Um, I'm just going to, I'm going to reconsider all the ones, you know, run it through that filter. Uh, but here's what we said. We talked about this movie Encanto. We talked about Mirabelle, the main character, who had these two lines in her opening song. One of the lines says, I'm fine. I'm totally fine. One of you sent me a meme about uh, Chandler in Friends, and it was awesome. It was a great memory of, was it Chandler or was it whatever? It doesn't matter. Uh, but there's this idea that we live in a world where even if things are terrible, we've become pretty accustomed to saying, I'm fine. I'm totally fine. Everything's fine. My life is fine. There's no problems here. But then later on in the very same song, actually the very next line, there's sort of a pause and she confesses what we already know to be true. I'm not fine. She says, I'm not fine. And Encanto gets it right here. We live in a world where people are pretty good at lying about or denying when things aren't fine. We'd rather pretend things are fine than admit that they're not. And for that reason and many more, when we look at a movie like Encanto, which I don't, I don't think there's reason to believe that it's set out to, to make any uh, particularly biblical message, but still, when we watch a movie like Encanto and we see resonance with some good lessons to learn, because it's good for us to admit when we're not fine, we realize that our posture towards culture, our posture towards the movies and the music and the, and the books and the literature, our posture towards the culture around us, even though sometimes it can feel like it's one that's adversarial, we should resist that. Our posture towards culture is not adversarial, it's missional. We want to see where the message of culture can be used to communicate the message of Christ. That is a good and right way to live. Uh, I'm going to talk today about Psalm number one. And we're going to kind of contrast, compare and contrast some of Encanto with the teachings of Psalm one. And we're going to spend most of our time in Psalm one. So if you want to turn there, uh, we're going to get there in just a second. But I want to make one more observation about the movie Encanto that I think uh, it challenges us really beautifully um, to, to consider something important about our lives. So again, a little reminder, there's a few main characters. There's Mirabelle, and she's the one who doesn't have any magical powers, even though everybody else in her family has magical powers. And the other people in her family, here's, here's some of them. Louisa, her sister, is strong, has incredible strength, can lift bridges and move them, which 
would be pretty cool. I mean, let's just admit, that'd be pretty cool. Isabella, she's beautiful, and she expresses that with the ability to create flowers. Uh, uh, Mirabel's mom, Julieta, can heal with a meal. That's a fun little wine. And then uh, Bruno, whom we don't talk about, but he has wisdom and knowledge and foresight, unlike anybody else. And I think here's one of the reasons they chose each of these powers in each of the family members, is because they're trying to make us aware of something. They're trying to make us aware that for a lot of us in our lives, we might look around at the people around us, we might look at the gifts that person has, the ability that person has, the life that person has, and if you're like me, you might have found yourself thinking, if I just had more of what they have, you know, when I'm facing troubles in my life, when life is hard, complicated, difficult, more than I'm ready for, you know what, if I just had more, and we fill in the blank with all sorts of different things. We could fill in the blank with the powers and the abilities of Mirabelle's family, with more strength or more healing ability or more wisdom. But we can actually fill in the blank with all sorts of things, right? If I just had more time or money, influence, strength, like if I just had more of this, then maybe my life would be more of what I want it to be. Have you ever filled in the blank in that way in your life? Have you ever found yourself staring at something hard and, and just going, oh man, this would be easier and better if I just had more? What is it for you? What's the thing you find yourself most often wishing you had more of. The, the movie resolves this tension in Mirabelle's life in a particular way, but what I want to do this morning is I want to look at Psalm 1 as what I think is the right way Christians should fill in that blank in a world that tempts us to fill it in in all sorts of potentially wrong ways. Um, the phrase under the sun comes from one of the uh, many books of wisdom literature in scripture, the book of Ecclesiastes, which is a book in which the author, who's just called the teacher, we don't get their name, the author spends their days looking at every corner of the universe trying to find meaning. They look, there's a, there's a refrain throughout the whole of the book of Ecclesiastes, they look at everything under the sun. But the conclusion of this particular author is, no matter where I look, no matter what people I look at, no matter what accomplishments I look at, no matter what experiences I look at, everywhere I look, everything under the sun, all that this author finds, they deem meaningless. And it's this sort of cry of a book saying, well, so if, if everything I find is meaningless, then where am I going to find something, to use our language, worth filling in that blank with. And even though the author of Ecclesiastes doesn't say it this way, I think the witness of Scripture says, well, one of the best answers you can find, you're going to find in Psalm number 1. Turns out um, there's a good chance that Psalm 1 was actually the very last psalm that was written. In a sense, they they compiled all 149 of the other psalms, and then they said, how are we going to write the best possible 
introduction. You know this, right? You, you write your essay in school, and at least supposedly you're supposed to write the whole thing. And then after you wrote the whole thing, you're supposed to go back and write the introduction. And everybody who's a literature teacher in here, you've taught your kids, your students to do that. And do they do that? No, they don't do that. But you've taught them to do that. Well, the person or the group responsible for compiling all these psalms, there's a good chance that they took Psalm 1 and it got written and placed at the beginning because it was an introduction to what we hope the whole book of Psalms does for us. I want to read uh, to you Psalm 1. Blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked or stand in the way that sinners take, or sit in the company of mockers, but whose delight is in the law of the Lord and who meditates on his law day and night. That person is like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields fruit in its season and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever they do, prospers. Not so the wicked. They are like chaff that the wind blows away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor the sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked leads to destruction. Pray with me. God, uh, we just know that our hearts are attracted to, tempted by, lured into all sorts of ideas and messages and, 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 and cause all sorts of hopes or desires in us. But God, we pray that in this gathering and in every day that your word would shape and form every desire in our hearts. May it be so. Amen. Okay, I want to highlight... Five quick things. Normally three. Today, five. Pray for conciseness. All right, here they are. Uh, blessed. Walk, stand, sit. I know that's three, but it only counts as one, all right? Delight and meditation. Trees and chaff. And watches over, which turns out is just one word in the Hebrew, but it's two words in English, so I count it as one, all right? It's just... Just count it as one. All right. Um, the, the poem starts with the phrase, blessed is the one. Very first word, blessing, blessed. And I think it's the beginning not only of this poem, but also of the whole of Psalms, because it should cause us to ask a question. It should cause us to ask a question that in, sense, in a sense we, we just asked in a different way, but, but here's the question. What does it mean? What does it mean to be blessed? What is the circumstance? What is the experience? What is the thing that would have to be true about your life that would cause you to say, now I'm blessed? That question, I think if we're honest, <laughs> uh, can have all sorts of different answers. And it's the question that sits over the whole of this poem. And immediately, it jumps to some potential answers, which are critiqued. It jumps to uh, three verbs, walk, stand, 
sit. Blessed is the one who does not walk in the way, I forget him, walk in step with the wicked, stand in the way that sinners take, or sit in the company of mockers. It's a really interesting progression from active movement, walking, kind of pursuing the ways of evil, to stillness, to sitting, from action to in action. And interestingly, sit in the company of mockers. I think in a way, what they're trying to say is, if blessing is the goal, and if we're reading scripture, so we know blessing is ultimately life the way God designed it to be. If the blessed life is the goal, there could be nothing more contrasted with the life God designed you for than sitting and mocking people. I mean, mockery is in a sense the The opposite, the antithesis of action. Nothing good, nothing productive or profitable in any way comes when we gather in the company of people who just ridicule and mock and put down others. Walk, stand, sit. So what does the blessed life mean? Okay, well, we know, we know the blessed life means pursuing something other than wickedness and sinfulness and mockery. But what does it mean? Well, the center, the physical center of the psalm, if you look at the whole thing, you'll see two couplets, or one couplet, two couplets, the center, one couplet, two couplets. The very center of the whole psalm, and we know that the center is the, the, the it's kind of like a highlighter, hey, right here in the middle. But not the one who walks, stands, or sits, but whose delight is in the law of the Lord and who meditates on his word day and night. Let me ask you a question. When was the last time you experienced and expressed delight? It's associated with things like giggling or unbridled laughter and happiness. We hosted a gathering at our house last night for all of the kindergartners that my daughter Naomi is going to be in class with next year. And at one point there were like 10 kindergartners and siblings of kindergartners, they kind of mix together. It's hard to tell them apart. Sitting on my trampoline, and I thought to myself, just the sheer laughter and joy and happiness coming out of that trampoline, that right there is delight. When was the last time you experienced delight? And is our delight found in God's word? And it connects delight with this manner of engaging with Scripture. It says, the one whose delight is in the law of the Lord and who meditates on it day and night. Okay, um, brief Hebrew lesson. Um, Pretty much all Hebrew words, the root of the word is actually just three letters. So if you're studying Hebrew and you're talking about a particular word, you don't often talk about the word, you talk about the three letters that make up the root of the word. So the the three-letter root of meditate, of our word meditate, is H-G-H. And I think it's going to show up. There we go. H-G-H. And then the the vowels get added in, or prefixes and suffixes get added on to build all the different versions of the word. So I looked up H-G-H. And let me read to you some of the definition of this word. So just, just take a second. Okay. Meditate, 
Think about the word meditate. What comes to your mind when you hear the word meditate? What image comes to your mind? What idea comes to your mind? What does that look like? What does that sound like? What does that feel like? Do you have like an image of, okay, there we go. I got some nods. Meditate is, is the translation. Here's some of the other translations of the Hebrew word. Groan, moan, sigh, utter, speak. Meditate, muse, imagine, devise. That's all for one form of the word. Here's another one. Chirp, coo, growl, or mumble. The prophet Jeremiah talks about how the lion meditates, growls over its prey. Here's another one. Resounding music, meditation, or Musing. The author uh, Eugene Peterson has written on the Psalms in many places, but one of the images he uses to capture the meaning of the word meditation is he talks about his dog. And he spent every summer in Montana, and then he retired in Montana, and he said one of his dog's favorite things was to roam the hills and the mountains around his Montana home and come upon a dead deer. And when the dog came upon a dead deer, you better believe it would grab one of those rib bones and extract it and bring it home. And the first thing the dog does when it comes home is it sort of prances around on the front porch, right? Looking for affirmation from its master. So Eugene, of course, oh, good boy. You found a bone. Good job. Right? But then, after being sufficiently scratched behind the ear, the dog would take the bone and would carry it to some lonely place would set it down, you can picture this in your head, right? Would, would walk around it a few times, maybe scratch a little dirt on it. I really don't get that part. I mean, there's other parts I get, but like the dirt on it, okay, I don't know. And then it would, you know, do like a, a curl, lay down with the bone right there, and it would spend days of what Eugene said, meditating on that bone. There's, a, there's a, a physical sense to the word. There's an interactive, there's, a, there's a, as I've said before, a kind of a mouthiness to meditation. It's not something you do silently just in your head or in your heart. It's something you do actively, that you can actually do in conversation with people, with study, with reading, with learning. It's deep engagement. What does it mean to live the blessed life? The heart of it, says the psalmist, is finding the delight of meditating on God's word. And the psalmist then uh, gives us a couple images, a couple images that depict the life of the wicked or the life of meditation. The images are that of a tree or that of Chaff. And these two images, I think, that we're going to explore in a second, these two images force us to ask a question, right? We've just seen walk in the way of the wicked, stand with sinners, or sit in the seat of mockers. That's one option. Or another option is delight found in meditation on God's word. In a sense, we're being asked, will my life be defined by mocking or by meditating? I've heard an author actually say, in any given circumstance, in any conflict, in any challenge, in any um, divisive or difficult decision or, or opinion that you have, you've got one of two basic choices. You can either 
mock or you can meditate. And some, if you boil it down in some way, maybe those are the two choices we have. And how do we capture, how do we illustrate those two? Well, um, the way of meditation is the way of a tree planted by a stream of water. All right, uh, we had a language lesson. We're going to jump to history lesson. lesson. Uh, This psalm was pretty likely written while the nation of Israel was living as a captive people. They had been exiled from their home and were living in a foreign country called Babylon. The Babylonians had captured them, were oppressing them, and so they were living in a foreign country. Babylon, like much of the ancient Near East, the climate was largely an arid, a very dry climate. Streams were not abundant. You grow up in northern Minnesota, where I grow up, streams are everywhere. You, you, you want to get rid of the streams because they make everything too wet. There's too much water. Ancient Babylon, a stream is a rare and precious commodity. And notice that it says the tree is planted by a stream of living water. Some scholars hypothesize that maybe what they're talking about is not a natural occurring stream, but one of the irrigation canals that this ancient culture had developed so that agriculture could happen. So just take a second and think about this. You live in a largely desert climate where trees grow almost never, almost nowhere. We're not talking about a climate filled with forests. We're talking about a flat, dry land. And the only way you can get a tree is if you somehow make sure there's water for it by digging a canal. Here's a picture of of what could be uh, the type of area. If you do that, the tree stands out. You, You can't ever miss a tree in that culture. It helps give strength to the soil, prevent erosion. It says, the psalm says, it bears its fruit in season. It is creating something because of the healthy soil in which it lives. In the desert, trees always stand out. But the tree that rooted, that firm life, right? We had, we had windstorm come through and the snowstorms come through and branches break and some trees fall. But man, it's amazing to see how heavy of a wind can blow and a tree can still stand. But it's contrasted with chaff, the hull or the husk of a seed that comes off when you do winnowing. I'm not sure I know what winnowing is, but it said when you do winnowing, the hull comes off the seed. And literally, chaff is something that if you took it and just crumpled it up a little bit and opened your hand, the most gentle breeze would make it utterly disappear. If a tree is strong and productive, by contrast, chaff can do nothing. You might even say chaff is nothing. Here's how, uh, again, Eugene Peterson concludes what this contrast is supposed to say. He says, The terrifying conclusion to the life of the wicked sinner scoffer is the complete inability to be anything. Blessed. What does it mean to be blessed? It means we do not walk in the way of the wicked or stand in the way of sinners or sit in the company of mockers, but rather we're people whose delight, whose joy, whose giddiness, whose laughter and giggling is found in God's word, so much so that we meditate on it. And what's it like? 
It's like choosing, do I want to be a tree that can produce a delicious fruit, or do I want to be like a chaff? The slightest wind will make me disappear. And then the psalmist ends with a final couplet. And it says, the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked leads to destruction. And and that verb, watches over, it's one word in Hebrew, and and it's pretty common when you do translation that you you have to get two words to translate one word. But um, let me show you another place in Scripture where one of Scripture's authors uses the same Hebrew verb. It comes in the book of Genesis. I didn't write down, and I don't remember which verse, but you'll recognize it. Adam knew Eve, and she became pregnant and gave birth to Cain. The Hebrew word that in Psalm is translated watches over is also sometimes translated as to know in the sense of for a husband and wife to be intimate and conceive a child together. What does it look like when our lives are lived in the delight and meditation on God's law? Relationship. An intimate, a close, a firm, a loving, a joy-producing relationship with our Maker is the result of meditation. I mean, I find myself thinking, if only I had more... If I'm honest, how often do I fill in the blank with more of God's Word? But what the Scripture says is, if I can fill the blank in with that, then I'm choosing the joy and the life and the fruit that can only come when God grows something inside me. So we have to ask, if this is true, what's your move going to be? And here's, here's how I want to explore this for one second before, okay, maybe for a couple minutes before um, giving a closing sort of image. Uh, here's the question. What do you do when? I guess I should have put another fill in the blank. What do you do when? You know, we... Um, we have to answer these types of kind of existential questions. What, what do we want? What do we hope for? What do we strive after? Um, for better or for worse, we often answer them when crisis comes our way, right? We answer them when, th- when things go wrong and get hard. That's when we find ourselves going, oh, okay, whoa. I really got to figure out what my life is about right now. Maybe some of us are in the middle of that. I know some of us are in the middle of that right now. It strikes me, though... Um, I've continued to uh, think about the people of Uvalde, Texas. And not only that, but I've been, I'm sure like many of you, have been listening to the news and, and reading and, and watching as our country again has a argument, I don't know if that's a sufficient word, <laughs> on guns. And I know that, that in this room, like in many churches, there are people with different opinions on what should or should not be done around guns in our country. There's no question about the evil being inflicted. It's abundantly clear. But apparently there's, a, there's division in the church about what good God-fearing Christians should do in this kind of a country, with this kind of a thing happening more than anywhere else on the planet. 
So here's my, um, here's my simple, I guess, challenge. When we're, uh, when we're deciding how to vote, when we're deciding how to speak, when we're deciding how to act, when we're deciding how to think about deeply divisive, and the reason they're divisive is because they're deeply difficult issues. When we're in that place, where are we spending our time finding our answers? Are we spending our time listening to a talking head, reading a blogger, reading the news, picking up the party line from this side or that side? Or are we spending the overwhelming majority of our effort planting ourselves in the living water that will only come from God's word? Do we have the humility to say, I have no allegiance to this point of view or that point of view, but only to Christ, and I'm willing to let Christ change my heart because that's the only thing I'm committed to. I don't, I believe that could change the view of this country on the evangelical church. I don't know if it will. I believe it could. I know that, at least from a lot of news that I read, the American people in general look at the largely the white American evangelical church and kind of look down on us because of how much we fight over this topic. If there's one thing that's going to change the heart of the church, this is what it is. God's word like a dog over the bone, like a lion growling over its prey. It's so joyful in our lives that we delight in it. We giggle and laugh and squeal and play. That's how we interact with God's word. Um, I've been reading a book. I'm going to recommend it to everybody. Um, I don't, there's not a lot of books I recommend to everybody, but I recommend this to everybody. It's called uh, Emotionally Healthy Discipleship. Moving from shallow Christianity to deep transformation. And when Schizero, the author, when he says emotionally healthy, um, from what I can tell, I think he actually means uh, much what we talked about a few weeks ago in our growth series. He means holistically healthy. He means the kind of health that takes every aspect of our life seriously. In the beginning of his book, he gives just this beautiful illustration. He says... um, one of his son-in-laws is becoming a stonemason. Uh, he's an apprentice right now, and it takes a few years till you can become a journeyman. And then apparently it takes about 20 years until you are a master stonemason. Apparently it's pretty tough to become a master stonemason. But Schizero's reflection is this. Um, people still love to use stone to build all sorts of things, in our world today. You don't have to drive far or look far to find a home that has some stone on it. Here's here's a house that I found a picture of on the internet that has stonework. But what Schizero says, and I don't have any reason to know otherwise, is that the vast majority of stonework that we see is not, in fact, stonework, but it's simply a veneer. Or as, I guess, in the mason world, it's called cladding where you don't build with stone, but this was rather built with sticks, two-by-fours. And then stone was cut thin and glued to the front of it. Still durable. I mean, that could still last, I don't know, 100 years, maybe a couple hundred years. But when a master stonemason 
takes true, full boulders and stacks them and adheres them and builds with them structures that are solid, they can last not hundreds, but thousands of years. We still have stone structures on earth today that are 3,000, 4,000, 5,000 years old and still standing. Um, here's what I know. This is not good news. Uh, here's what I know. We're, we're going to continue to live lives where challenge comes our way. Where the world we live in hurts us, harms us, hurts those we love, harms those we love. The, the country we live in fights and is divided and people you know, sell fear in all sorts of different ways. Uh, I, don't, I, don't, I don't have a lot of reason to believe that's going to change. But here's what I do know. We have a choice about how we're going to respond to that world that we continue to live in. We can ask ourselves, what kind of a faith Am I building? Is it a veneer? Am I just trying to glue the appearance of Christian faith? Am I trying to just glue God's word onto the front of my door? Am I trying to just put a bumper sticker on it? Or am I building, like a master stonemason, something that will last with roots that go deep? The thing that Jesus talked about emphasized in his teaching more than anything was what he called the kingdom of God. God's will, God's way accomplished here on earth. So maybe to come back around, when we fill in the blank, what if we filled in the blank with this? If only I had more of the kingdom of God. Would you pray with me? God, at present, you know, there's... there's Discussions, debates, there's angry words being spoken around guns and gun control and um, the laws around that, the practices around that, all the data around it. But, man, when this season passes, we know there will be another debate. And beyond national issues, God, we just, we have our own baggage and burdens, wounds and weaknesses that we're dealing with in our own lives. Here's my prayer, God, and, and I just, I hope that everyone in this room might might not just make this their prayer, but it would be the true desire of our hearts. God, give us a longing for you. Give us a commitment to the kingdom of God, to the life and teaching of Jesus, the key to understanding all of scripture. Give us, give us a longing, a delight, a hunger for that. Might we go to that before anything else? Might we lean on that more fully than anything else? Might we confess any ways we're forgetting or failing or ignoring what you teach? Convict us where we run away, where we walk in the way of the wicked. Convict us where we're sitting inactive in the company of mockers, just chiding and ridiculing the world around us and call us instead to meditate, to chew, to growl, to moan, to imagine, to interact with one another in our own hearts on your word. May it be so, we pray. Amen.